All right. So nice to be back together with you guys on our Tuesday morning Bible study. We are in reviewing lesson four, uh, which covered Acts 4, 23 to 542. And I could hear some loud laughing over in from this group here this morning. I'm not sure exactly what that was, but I'm just happy. I love hearing the laughter. I'm assuming it was something, um, you know, great and spiritual that you were giggling about. Yeah. I'm just going to, we're going to leave it there. We'll just leave it there. All right. Um, go ahead and open up your uh, Bibles today to Acts chapter four. And we'll begin uh, with this. I don't know about you, but this past lesson and the content of these words weighed heavy on me in a good way. Um, but <laughs> my goodness. And um, we're going to kind of dig a little bit more into that this week. And again, like I've said before, I love coming before you and teaching, knowing that you've already been in the Word, uh, because you get more aha moments, I get more aha moments, we make those connections, we see things in new ways, and so I, I thank you for your faithfulness and your studies and being in the Word together. So the apostles, uh, <laughs> they have hit the ground running. And uh, thank, thank God, literally thanking God for the Holy Spirit. And as they have been blessed with the Holy Spirit, the church is growing. Um, people are noticing. And people are noticing and joining and excited and enthused and, and, and happy. And people are noticing and are angry and rageful and jealous. And we saw that contrast of that emotional response, the blessed response, and, and the response of those who resist. And we're going to see more of that as we get into the message again today. But I love, love, love the apostles' wording here. Let's see if I can get my get my slides cooperating here so I can... There we go. I love this from Acts chapter 4, verse 20. And uh, I, as I was reading this passage from the, our previous um, lesson, it reminded me of how I feel like I want this to be f- true for me. I cannot but speak of what I've seen and heard. And that was the apostles' mindset as well. And Paul and John actually had the same. Paul, of course, comes an apostle later on. Um, but he later says to the Corinthians, I, Woe to me! Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. What a powerful thing to be able to say. And in First John, uh, the apostle says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. They saw it, they experienced it, they were there, they received the word, and they can't help but speak. And so John goes in to write the rest of that um, epistle and the other two as well along with that. So the apostles are fired up and ready to go. And let's go ahead and pick up with them here in verse 23 of chapter 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. And I'll pause right there. They lifted their voices together. Ladies, that right there is the model for us as women, as women who love God, love the word, love one another, that they come together and they lift their voices together. We're going to get into a little bit more of that in just a minute, but think about what we're doing right now. And what I heard in the room just a moment ago, that laughing and that lifting of our voices together, whether it's in praise of God or just in fun and fellowship and just silliness, but that's what fellowship and that's what community is about. And I want you to know right now in all seriousness that God is blessing you because of your faithfulness to be in community 
and to connect with one another, to reach across the table, to hold hands, to pray, to meet together on off weeks besides just Bible study. Know that. And thank God for that. Say, thank you, God. Thank you for blessing me, that you've given me that. And be appreciative that they can come, that you can come together and lift your voices together just like the apostles and disciples did. All right. So what did they say? They come together and they lift their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. And that word sovereign Lord, we talked about that in the study, is, is not a usual word for Lord like kurios is the usual word. It's a rare word. It's this Greek word despotas. And it's actually associated with a slave owner, someone who has absolute rights over that person. And in this case, they're referring to them not only as sovereign Lord over themselves, but over all of creation. And notice that they don't come to God with um, the Our Father, like a formulaic prayer. I mean, they have been taught the Our Father in a sense. If you were raised Catholic, you might have even heard it referred to as the Our Father, right? They come to God in this spontaneous recognition of who God is. It's the same wording that's used in Daniel chapter 9. It's a word that can pay, convey power and total sovereignty. And that's exactly what they needed. They, they didn't need therapy. They didn't need comfort at this moment. They didn't need to be feeling good. They needed to affirm God and God's sovereignty. Is God stronger than the Sanhedrin? That's the big guys in their life right now. The Sadducees, this whole council, the Sanhedrin. Is God stronger than the Roman Empire? And they come together with one voice and they say, Sovereign Lord. So they affirm together as they pray aloud. The almighty creator, they acknowledge him. Ladies, as you come together with your friends and we bear our hearts and we share our stories and we tell each other what's going on in our lives, is that true of us? Do we point one another to the sovereign Lord or, or do we commiserate, right? Rather than take command and say, God, you're in charge and point one another to the sovereignty of God. The, the God who said, let there be. And it was who brought the heavens and the earth together in the sea and all that's in it. Ex nihilo in Latin, out of nothing God created by the words of his mouth. So they call unto this God, the sovereign Lord. Ladies, that's an example for us today in your life and who you're associating with. You've got your, you've got your circles of friends and they're kind of these Co-centric circles that ring out from your middle core group. That middle core group should be your sovereign Lord group. That when you go to and you've got weight on your heart and, and challenges in your life, that you go to that group of people who get it and will point you back to the sovereign Lord. And they ring out from there and less and less. And we're gonna we want to bring them in, but you've got that group of people. We I've I've talked to you about these people before. I call them the avocado worthy people. You've heard me share maybe that story before. Um, but when you when you go to someone with a problem and they say, "Oh, I'll pray for you," okay, you go to someone with a problem. I read a good quote about that. Oh, here's a good therapy session. Oh, you should do this. They're not pointing you to Sovereign Lord. They're not sovereign Lord worthy. They're not avocado worthy in a sense. There are those, the people that you hand the avocado to is the point of the story is you have, hey, I have an avocado. Would you like some? They should go, oh, you're sharing your avocado with me. <laughs> wow. That's the proper response. The people who you slice up an avocado and look and say, would you like some avocado? And they go, eh, yeah. We have exceptions. Pam's been like grandfathered in to this role over here. She is totally in. But we have sovereign Lord worthy. We have that tight circle of friends. Ladies, cultivate that. Be that for others. Don't let yourself not be that. 
be that for others as well. All right. So sovereign Lord, they direct their prayers to him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who brought through the mouth of our father, David, your servant and said by the Holy Spirit. Now, ladies, listen, when you're praying out loud like this, this room should have been, they would have been like shaking with the amens. And the affirmations, because when they hear these words, when you hear these words and you're reminded who God is, you're going, amen, that's right, that's who God is, right? We, we have the sovereign Lord on our side, Sanhedrin, Shmedrin, right? We got the sovereign Lord for us, Roman Empire, Shempire, we got the sovereign Lord on our side. And they point to him, not because everything's going to turn out okay and they're going to get their best life now because most of these people praying right now are going to be slaughtered for their faith. That's not going to be any self-help book. That's not going to be how to get your best life now. And if your gospel can't be preached when people are being persecuted, true persecution, then it's not the gospel. If your gospel can't be taken to places where people need to hear that you might die for your faith, but our sovereign Lord, creator of the heavens and the earth. You might not get your way, but our sovereign Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so they move into this little bit of review of history. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and is anointed. They're quoting from Psalm 2. What's your favorite psalm? Do you like to quote? My dentist is a Christian, by the way. She posted on her Facebook page for her dentist business this week. Um, she says, what do you do when you're in the dentist chair? I'm just curious. And honestly, not to sound super spiritual, I, literally I posted, oh, I actually pray Psalm 139. It's, it's one of the Psalms that I have memorized. And so when you're in the concentration camp, I mean the, um, the dentist chair, <laughs> you're thankful. I didn't mean that. She listens to the podcast. I love you. You're the best dentist. Give me more of a when you're there, you are thankful for the words that you've got memorized. What do you quote back? What do you say? What comes through your mind? I quote Psalm 139. I, I, I memorized it. Uh, maybe Psalm 119, little parts of that here and there. Maybe the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Maybe you knew that from when you were a kid. All right. What do you quote back? For the early Christians, it was the Psalms about the Messiah. And the second Psalm was one of the first of them. Psalm 45, Psalm 69, Psalm 110, Messianic Psalms. Fabulous study someday, ladies. Maybe we'll do that next summer. Learn the Messianic Psalms. Know who was predicted and who Jesus was. And so what it is, it's, a, it's, it's, it's imagining the world, imagining the enemies of God, and they're united. They're plotting together. These enemies, they come from every location around, and they're united in their opposition to the Lord, the sovereign God, and his anointed to the Messiah. And that's exactly what these apostles, these disciples have seen in Jerusalem, isn't it? Because they say, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Now, Herod and Pontius Pilate were nobodies at all. All right. They, they weren't besties at all. They were enemies politically. They, they were barely making it together, but they were making it for the, the Roman Empire. But they were united in opposition to Jesus and this movement. And they've seen the second Psalm fulfilled. They've seen the Messiah fulfilled and it's um, filling their ears and it's filling their eyes. And so the disciples affirm, we affirm this to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And this is an elevating prayer. This is not, I don't know if you're up there. 
I'm just going to shout these words up anyway. Maybe you'll hear me and toss it up and see if it sticks prayer. Ladies, this is a prayer of people who actually have faith. I get it. We doubt. Gosh, really God, are you there? Not in this moment though. Not this time. These guys have seen, they've heard, they've touched. This like just like what John says in 1 John 1. They've tasted and they've touched and they've seen and they've been. They know that they know that they know that he's the despota, the sovereign master of all the earth. We have no rights. We're the bond servants. We're literally his slaves, which sounds ugly to say, but that's the, that's the visual power of this. We enslave ourselves willingly to the master of the universe. Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, that's faith. And too often we carry our limitations, our lack of imagination, even over to God. And instead of releasing our mindset and submitting to the sovereign God, we bring our faithfulness to the throne, which is open for us that we can enter boldly, we learned in Hebrews. But no, not here. They bring their faith together, empowered by what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've felt, and what they've experienced. And they pray with that power and that conviction. And they're bold in their asking about the reality for God to do more boldly in their lives, right? They want their cup to truly overflow. And the prayer moves from adoration to petition. And they begin by acknowledging the absolute power of God. And they ask him to use that absolute power so they can continue to get their mortgages paid, their new car, better friends, a better job. Give me, give me, give me. No. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to, look at all the verbs here, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while we're doing this. We're, this is a constant action that we're doing. And you're, it's like this, they're out here and they're doing and, and, and you see the verbs, look upon their threats, grant to your servants. Um, that's that word there is actually doulos, slave. And yes, we get the doulon word from it for um, uh, the women who help midwifing and all that. That's the same word. Help us to continue to speak. Help us to continue to speak with boldness. And you see the overarching hand of God that they're inviting to enable and empower them to continue. Your wonders are performed throughout your name of your holy servant. They've just literally been told, don't speak in that name anymore. And here they are loudly in one voice praying in that exact name. And the amen for the prayer is missing. Did you notice there's no amen here? You know where the amen comes from? It comes from heaven. It's from heaven. It's almost as if God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together pounding a table in heaven. Now that's what I'm talking about when they hear this powerful prayer. Because right, what happens right after they pray? When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's an amen from heaven. That's a powerful amen. Ladies, that's what we want together. We want to come together and pray with that kind of affirmation, that kind of unity, that kind of confidence, that kind of boldness. We want to pray scripture. We want to just be wrapped with scripture coming forth from our heart, out of our mouths, into one another's ears. That's why I have you memorizing the word each week. Do that. Write the word. I know not all of you do it. I know I get it. It's a lot of work. Do it anyway. Write the word. Read the word. Memorize the word. Get it in you. Because when it pours out, you get the amen from heaven on that, right? So that boldness, that boldness that they're praying for is not everyone out preaching and teaching and doing the things on their own in the name of Jesus in their own big and, and loud, personal way. 
And we're very much like that in American culture, right? We, we want to put our way into it. But it is united. What does Luke say next about them? What characterized them? What characterized their boldness and their unity? Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that anything that belonged to them was its own, but they had everything in common. And it wasn't because they passed on law that they had to do that. It was just a spontaneous reaction to what was going on. They wanted to be together. Now listen to how Luke describes what's going on. When I read this and I read it and read it and went, this is so cool. Listen to this. And with great power, that's megale dynamé. Megale dynamé. The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace, megalakaris, was upon them all. That word great is the Greek word mega. We get the word mega from it, right? So it's big, it's mega, it's great, okay? Ladies, this is the mega church. This is literally a mega church. I mean, if you think about it, they've already added 3,000 and by definition, a mega church is any church that's over 3,000, right? So they have literally have a, the first megachurch right here. And Luke goes to great lengths to describe it. It's not just a megachurch because of the size. It's mega because of the power. Megale dynamé. Megale grace. Right? Great power. Great grace. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the apostles of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed as each one had need. That's what happens when you have great power and great grace. People just, boom, they come together. There's no bickering. There's no my stuff, your stuff. Oh, I don't know. Everyone's coming together with great power and, and great grace. And they lay it at the apostles' feet. And I want you to pay attention to that phrasing also because Luke uses it over and over and over and over and over again in his writing. Feet come up a lot in Luke. And miracles about feet and ankles come up. Notice that one as well. Make, that, make a note of it as you continue your studies. Thus, Joseph. There we go. So we get this transition. And Luke does this as well. He's like, he's going on and it's great power and it's great grace. And there was, the place was shaken. And then he does this little introduction in, in aside. Oh, I want to meet, I want you to meet this guy. <laughs> All right. And he's going to do it again in just a minute. This guy, Joseph, who's also called by, by the apostles, Barnabas. I always remember what he didn't have to say. He didn't have to give us all this information, but he does, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus or Cypriot, some of your Bibles might say, the island is still there, sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and did what with it? Laid it at the apostles' feet. All right? So food's getting distributed. Everything's getting laid. The apostles are deciding where it goes. They're all bringing it into the apostles. They're laying it at the apostles' feet. This isn't just symbolic. It's literally what's happening. People are pouring in and they're putting it at the apostles' feet. And Luke takes the time to give, point out this one guy, Barnabas. Barnabas is going to be a key player the rest of Acts. We're going to hear a lot from him later. But I want you to notice Luke's cool literary style as he writes. He does this repeating phrase thing and he includes contrast, great power, grace, big Mega unity to the humble, submissive unity at the apostles' feet. That's humility. That's submission. That's this greatness bringing it down and laying it down. It's just this beautiful visual contrast. And the contrast of the man Barnabas and the couple he's about to introduce cannot be missed, right? Because he even opens it up with one important word, but, but. Not a good word. Not in this case, at least. It's a contrast word. It's a signal word. There's a shift. And boy, is there ever a shift. Up to this point, we have seen, well, we've seen math in the church. Think about it. We've seen God add to the church. We have seen God multiply. And now we're going to see subtraction. 
All right. And God does all of that for the health of the church. He adds, he multiplies, he subtracts. Guess what he never does, though? Never divides. Never divides. We're divisive. God adds. God subtracts. God multiplies. God never divides. People do. People like Ananias and Sapphira do. So God continues to answer the apostles' prayer, doesn't he? You stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, they prayed, and do whatever your hand and plan was destined to take place. And I'm sure there is no way in their mind they could have fathomed this moment would happen, but they had literally just prayed that. You do whatever your hand and your plan of destined to take place. And he's going, all right, better get ready. I got, I got Barnabas, good job, Barnabas. And he knows ahead. He's seen Ananias and Sapphira conspiring over there in the corner. All right? There's no way they could have expected that. Ladies, that's true submission to the Father. All right. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept that back for the proceeds and bought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's the phrase again. Don't miss this. They also lay like Barnabas did, only not their honest proceeds at the apostles' feet. And without hesitation, Peter confronts the husband. See, Peter has supernatural understanding at this point because remember, they had mega power and they had mega grace and they had mega wisdom and they had mega wisdom and we're going to see more of that in the next lesson but Peter is already exemplifying it here. That's what the fruit salad of the Spirit does for us, isn't it? This big bowl, a mega bowl of spiritual fruit and Peter has it. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to what? Lie to the Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourself proceeds of the land, while it remained unsold, didn't remain your own. After it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? You could have done whatever you wanted with it. Why did you, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to what? God. They have laid it at the apostles' feet. They literally were lying to man. But Peter elevates the church and he elevates what our mission is and he, and he elevates the honesty and humility and a contrite heart and an open heart and truth within the church. And he says, not on my watch. We're not going to have duplicitousness, right? We're going to come before God in this church. And he's elevating where you didn't lie to man. You did. But you lied to God. Woe is you, he's basically saying. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Again, do you think that was part of the prayer plan that they had back in the day when they were praying in that room and God shook the room? Oh God, do whatever your hand is and, you know, smack the bad guys. and do No, just do whatever you need to do. And God says, all right, I'm on it. And does it. And it begins by smiting people. Whoa. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And what? Great fear. That's a mega church, people. Great fear. The mega word again, and then phobos, fear. Phobia, that's where we get our word phobia. Come upon all who heard it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him like it was no big deal. Like, done and done. All right, this is all, I guess this is the new church. This is all the things are going to get done. After an interval, about three hours, his wife comes in, not knowing what happened. After Peter said to her, tell me what, you sold the land for such and such. And she said, yeah, so much. But Peter said to her, how has you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet. There's that phrase again. And breathed her last. When the young men came, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And what? Great fear. Mega phobos. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. What is God doing here? What's the message? Well, it's the same message when he started calling out his holy people of Israel. 
and they get out of Egypt and they make it to the promised land right to the edge. Moses dies. God puts him in the cleft of the rock. Moses dies and Joshua takes the troops over and they, you know, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. They take down Jericho. Remember that? We're so great. We're so awesome. And then they head off to defeat this tiny little, literally so tiny that it only has two letters for its name, AI. That's the name of the town. AI. That's how small the town is. It's so small. They're like, um, we can send, you know, the old feeble guy in wheelchairs over there to knock this town out. So they like reduce the troops down. They send them in and they're sending the camp because God had specifically told them, do not touch the devoted things. Don't touch this. Don't touch that. You go in there and you kill them all. And this one guy, Aiken. Oh, he's Aiken for sure later. This guy, Aiken, ends up holding back the devoted things, hides them, and Joshua has to go through this whole procedure. If you have children and you've ever had to try to find who's the, who's the one who done it, you're like, all right, who did it? And they're like, I don't know. Was it him? I don't know. Was it him? You're like, someone just confessed. So God does that, and he brings them out by tribe, and then brings them out by clan, then he brings them out by family, and it's just narrowing in on Aiken, and Aiken's wife's like, who knows if she even knew what happened, the Bible doesn't say, but the end of the story is Aiken dies, and his entire family, and all of his children, and his goats, like, they include the animals, and God says, I'm having none of it. My people will be pure. We will not have sin in the camp. And so that's the beginning of the Old Testament, starting of these are my people. And God basically is doing the exact same here. And when he calls out Ananias and Sapphira for holding back when they shouldn't have done that. They should have been honest about what they were giving. God takes sin seriously. God takes it very seriously. It's a spirit-filled life that he's calling us to. There's no room for sin in that. Chapter 5. We have a response to a Satan-filled life. Chapter 4, spirit-filled life. And I think Luke points out the laying and the falling that people speak for a stark contrast of true and false humility. And I think Luke uses the word mega here to also make the point that this is not only a mega church with mega power and mega grace, but it's that the truth that we serve a mega God, a holy God who lavishes grace as seriously as he takes sin. Listen to what this reminder tells us in Hebrews chapter 10. I, I didn't put the slide together for this. I just want to read this passage to you from 10. And, and um, you're going to get a little bit of Hebrews in this next lesson coming up as well. Those of you who've been through the study, you'll be like, what? Mind blown. There's so many connections. It's awesome. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to hop over there, there are no slides for this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, I want you to hear this in light of what, what has just gone on in the church. Hold in your mind the author of Hebrews likely experiencing all of this was probably one of the apostles. We don't know who it was or connected and taught by one of the apostles. I'll give you my theory on that in day five. I think of this coming up lesson. Here we go. Therefore, brothers, since we have such confidence in our holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us and since through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with pure water. Listen again to Hebrews in light of Ananias and Sapphira. Think about that, what's going on over there. Now listen to Hebrews, 20, verse 23, chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet as some are in the habit of doing. For if we go on sinning deliberately, Verse 26, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, Ananias and Sapphira, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. So much for our nice little cuddly God of a judgment, a fury of fire that will consume adversaries. Anyone that has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
Ananias and Sapphira coming before all of the apostles. How much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant which was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Mega grace. It's in the church. Verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31. Listen to this in light of Ananias and Sapphira. Hebrews 10, 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's our church. God doesn't tolerate hypocrisy. And I'm so glad he doesn't smite us dead so far in the middle of singing. Because what if I'm singing in the middle of church? I surrender all. If I'm holding something back in my heart, boom, smite. We'd have to have morgues in the church to take care of all the simple people. Thank God we have more mega grace and he's not mega smiting us today. All right. So, now many signs and wonders were regularly being done. You think? That's a big sign. That's a huge stop sign right there. That is a sign to everybody. Don't do that. Right? And wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. That's the people who aren't ready, aren't willing, aren't interested. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. The rest, no. But the believers, the one who say, I believe, they were added to the Lord. So that they even carried out the sick in the streets, laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. They were all healed. What about Peter's shadow? What about Peter's shadow? Um, I I don't think there's anything magical, spiritual, holy, um, miraculous about his shadow. But people thought if Peter's shadow fell on them, fell across them, they were going to be healed. So when Peter walked by, the shadow hit them, they, they were healed. I believe it was because of their faith, not because of his shadow. Like the lady who held on to the garment of Jesus, the hem of Jesus' garment there. It was not his garment that was magical powers, miraculous, it was her faith. All right. But the priest rose up. There's that word but again. Introduced Ananias and Sapphira, and but introduces uh, the high priest. And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. There's our emotions coming in again. The rest of the apostles put him in prison. During the night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go. Stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So the angel says, go, stand, speak. That's solid. That's forceful. And God wants that kind of defiant courage, that kind of boldness, that kind of boldness that really confronts. And that command sounds incredible. Like, have you ever had a ball in a swimming pool? You're trying to push the ball down. You get a volleyball, go swim with it and try to keep it down. You try to push it down. It keeps on bobbing up. That's the way they were right now. They keep on trying to submerge the apostles and they keep on popping up in the same spot. Literally. <laughs> all right. So look at the end of verse 20. Now go and speak all the words of this life. This life. This life. That's exactly what the gospel's message is. Words of life. Paul said to the Philippians, holding forth the word of life. And you know that the message that we preach is the message of life. We have a death-celebrating world, right? We have have people who literally celebrate death um, in in our culture. And and God says, we are life. We bring life. And ladies, that death takes form in many ways because you might think in your heart, I don't celebrate death. But you do. 
Because when something dies in your heart and you're sad about your marriage or your friendship and you're willing to cut it, that's, that's you moving in on death in your life. Rather than saying, God, how are you best glorified? Are you glorified that my marriage fails? Are you glorified that I cut off this friendship? Are you glorified that I, you think of anything that you would want to see die in your life? Cutting off. Hear my heart on this. I've been through a lot in my friendships and you know my marriage story. So I, I'm not saying, standing here from a place of ignorance. I get it. Marriage is difficult. But God is best glorified when our marriages are whole because our, we're whole. All right? And we celebrate. That's the life that we have. That's the life that we celebrate. That's what we fight for in our churches and in our friendships. And instead of encouraging your friend and, and commiserating with your friend who's going through a difficult friendship battle or a work battle or a marriage battle, you're praying for wisdom and discernment because you need to know she's actually in an abusive situation that she needs to get out of in a friendship or a relationship with a mom or a dad or whomever it is because there's that. Or do you need that person to speak life into somebody's relationship? Because that's what the gospel is. It's words of life. So this is what you declare. You go in there and you tell people how they can all have that kind of life. And you preach the resurrection. That's what the angel basically says to them. Jesus said, I am the resurrection of the life. So the key to the message of life was preaching of this resurrection. So when the high priest came, those who were with him, they called together the council, all the Senate, the people of Israel sent to the prison to have them brought. When their officers came, they didn't find them in the prison. They returned and reported, we found the prison, it's locked, and the guards are standing at the door, but no one's inside. And we see the captain of the, uh, the temple and the chief priests heard all this, and they were greatly perplexed about wondering, what would this come to? And someone came and told them, uh, look, <laughs> I just love this scene. Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them in, not by force, but they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them in, they set them before the council. The high priest questions them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You've disobeyed us, they say. And they had. They had. But then they told them, they would. They said they would. Back in chapter 4, verse 18, they said, We command you not to speak. And Peter says, You judge whether we ought to obey you or obey God. We cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard, Peter says. And so we will speak. And so they did. They spoke. And so when they came to arrest them for disobeying, they went. So for the first indictment, disobedience. The second charge they made against them is that they had accused them of the death of Christ. And notice this at the end of the verse. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Think back into the Gospels, ladies. You're saying all over the place that we're guilty. And that's right. That's exactly what you've been saying. You guys have really gotten it right. You guys are totally accurate. You have nailed it. We've been disobedient and we've been indicting you. Gold star. You got them right both times. I mean, all the way through this passage, Peter has been indicting them over and over again. Chapter 2, verse 23, he says, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men this Christ. Chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know that God, um, assuredly, that God had made the name Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. You killed the prince of life. Let it be known to you all, all the people of Israel, that you have killed Jesus Christ over and over and over again. <coughs> They've been saying that all along. This isn't news. You did it. But have you forgotten have you forgotten your very own words, O oh, mighty religious leaders, in Matthew 27, 25? Jesus was to be crucified, and what were they all screaming? Crucify him. Crucify him. And then they went further, and they said, 
let his blood be on us. Guess what? They got what they wanted. Peter's not accusing them of anything that they hadn't already said that they would take on the blood of Christ. They already said that. Let his blood be on us. You got it. It's on you. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Oh, I wanted to tell you about the um, doctrine word here in this teaching. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. That's that word doctrine again. And I mentioned this last time before, but don't be afraid of that word uh, doctrine. So Peter and apostles answered again, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. Why does he say that? Well, he was crucified. He could have said he was crucified, but he goes back to this prophecy and or um, law in Deuteronomy. The Old Testament says, "Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree," and that was the most shameful, the most despicable, a cursed death man could die. And they chose that one for the Son of God, and God exalted him at His right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. There's our word leader, archegon. Can also be translated um, prince. Maybe in your Bible it might even say that head, author, founder, prince, and savior, which is literally means um, savior. That's exactly what it means. All right, you exalt. Um, God exalted him to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Who gets the Holy Spirit? Those who obey. Obedient people get the Holy Spirit. All right. It's always been that way. It was that way in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit came and went on people when they obeyed and whom God chose. Now the Holy Spirit is available to all. We must obey. Okay. When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, we meet this guy Gamaliel, teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So Gamaliel, he was addressing the Sadducees, but Gamaliel was actually a Pharisee. All right, very respected teacher in Israel. He's a grandson of another respected rabbi named Hillel. Hillel was um, a rabbinical scholar, and this is the grandson Gamaliel is of Hillel. And he ends up, we hear later that he was one of the uh, Paul's teachers. So Paul studies under this guy Gamaliel, and he says to them, verse thirty-five: Men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men, for before these days Theudas rode up. Claiming to be somebody, a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. All who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of census and drew away some of the people after him. Uh, Just a little side note on this. Gamaliel actually plays down the whole Judas thing. Uh, Judas actually ends up being a guy who starts the Zealots, uh, this group of people who um, were very zealous for basically Zionism. And uh, so there were a few more followers of this guy, Judas, and and, um, Gamaliel kind of downplays that in this little point right here. All right, so he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow him. You might even be found opposing God. You know, that's a pretty wise counsel. And that's, we look at that and go, well, that's pretty smart. You're right. How can anyone stand up against God? But honestly, listen, ladies, if Gamaliel had truly been wise, if he had truly been a wise rabbi, he would have turned them all back to the word of God. That's what he would have done. Not some pithy little saying, oh, God's plans. If it's from God, it'll, it'll you know, last. It'll, no one can overthrow God. No one can be opposing God. You are opposing God, Gamaliel. You and your whole group are. You should be back in the scriptures. That would have been true wisdom. 
He could have opened up the scriptures. He could have compared it to what Peter was teaching with what the scripture says. So Gamaliel was smart, but he wasn't really truly wise, was he? Oh, fools and slow of heart, Jesus said, to believe all the prophets have written unto you. A master of that text, Gamaliel should have been, would have been able to apply those principles of God and seen that. All right. So he comes up with this weak application, sort of this kind of good theology. And ladies, I want you to be on your toes and on your mind and have discernment about that as well. Because you'll have good speakers and good teachers and be careful. Me, I mean, listen and think. What does God's word actually say? And compare everything that a speaker offers you or teacher gives you, whether it's in a book or from a pulpit. How does it line up with the word of God? Is that wise? Yeah, but is that really truly what God's word says? Should I be moving in further? Pray for discernment and pursue that kind of wisdom. All right. So... What they're doing, if it be of God, you can't overthrow it, is it literally what they're what he's saying is literally what the, the Jewish leaders are doing. How many men have tried to overthrow the things of God and wound up being crushed by it? That's exactly what they're doing here in this moment, weren't they? All right. And what did Jesus say in Matthew twelve? Remember? He that is not with me is what? Against me. Men fight God. They oppose his gospel. They oppose the Bible. They oppose the law. They oppose God's providence. They oppose the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They resist the Holy Spirit. They fight God, and they were fighting God. And so we hear them, and they say, um, Scripture says that they took his advice, sort of. They called the apostles. They beat them. They charged them not to speak um, in the name um, in the name of Jesus. And they let them go, and they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And this reminded me beautifully of James, the apostle's words in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He had been there, James, before he wrote this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know what he goes on next in James chapter 1 to say? Pray for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should do what? Ask God. That's what Gamaliel should have been doing. And that's what James points out right there in James chapter 1. All right, verse 42. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They were unstoppable. There's nothing that they that they would, wouldn't be willing to do, and they really do literally give it all. For the gospel of Jesus Christ in this moment. Ladies, that's our call today. That's you sitting here right now and asking God for discernment and for wisdom in your life and the relationships you're engaging with in your life and how you're speaking to your own self and what your private time looks like. And you're asking God, am I honoring you? Am I seeking you? Am I awe-sovereign Lord? Really and truly in every step and every way of my life. Is that me today? And you humble yourself and you, you lay that before his feet today, just like the apostles did. And you come before one another in this group and we hold each other up as avocado worthy, as sovereign God worthy women who want to see that happen in our church. And we do it with the adults that we're engaged with, with our kids in our lives, with our husbands, with our friends. That's the level of engagement that we have. That's the kind of power that we will see when we hold each other to that kind of accountability. Let's pray. Hold hands around your groups here and just ask God to bless our efforts as we continue to seek him. Father God, we do thank you once again for your sovereignty, for your power, for your grace. 
for the mega power, mega grace that you give us in our life. God, give us that humble heart to come before you and acknowledge, Lord, the sins that we have that we need to confess, the areas and tendencies of life that we might even resist your Holy Spirit and come before us, Lord, right now in this moment as women, as we hold on to each other's hands and just say, God, we want to give our lives fully, totally and completely to you. Help us to do that. We want that power of the Holy Spirit, that grace to live that kind of life fully surrendered to you and go before us now as we head into this busy holiday season bless our efforts lord to to be hospitable to love our friends and to love our families in the way that we decorate and share the meals lord but never let us lose sight through all the business business and the stress and the things that we'll be dealing with never let us lose sight of you that we have opportunities to share your grace and your power and your gospel truth with everybody that you bring to our tables in the rest of these weeks and this year. Lord, bless our remaining time together now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.